Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In this terrific new documentary film, Ask No Questions, Jason Loftus takes us into a journalistic investigative story of true crime documentary that paints uh, the scope of crime and the depth of the investigation of the Chinese state. It has to do with a man by the name of Chen Rusheng. Is he is detained and uh, for his essentially for his beliefs in a particular uh, faith uh, called Fulangang in China, and how this very public fiery suicide essentially precipitates his fate in terms of being arrested. He himself, who used to work for the uh, Chinese state TV, is skeptical of the incident, and it plays out in many different ways. The film, again, is called Ask No Questions, and we're lucky enough to have with us today the director of the film, Jason Loftus. Jason, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you, Jason. I I feel like I didn't do justice to explaining the premise of the film, so I'm going to ask you to do a much better job than I did in explaining what uh, Ask No Questions is about. Well, I think you did a good job, actually, but uh, it is, a, you're right, it's a true, a true crime uh, documentary. I think it's the only journalistic doc here at Slamdance. They don't take a lot of those. Really pleased that they connected with the story. But it is, it's a look at fake news on a level that we may not have imagined uh, to be possible. And that's sort of the, the starting point with this, is it was a very troubling incident that was used um, prominently in the Chinese press to, to justify the ongoing uh, crackdown on Falun Gong in China, which is something that started uh, in the late 90s, in 1999. And Chen, as an insider, uh, someone who worked and uh, created the news uh, for the state, and was familiar with how they went about crafting messaging uh, to serve sort of political objectives rather than purely news objectives. Um, he became involved with Falun Gong and then was also immediately suspicious of this fiery suicide in Tiananmen Square uh, that they had said was proof that Falun Gong was a dangerous cult that needed to be uh, eradicated by the Chinese state. And that's essentially what this self-immolation incident was held up as evidence of. Uh, he was very suspicious of it, and as a result, he goes through a very hard-to-imagine uh, prolonged period of incarceration, uh, indoctrination, uh, forced brainwashing. Like the, the descriptions we get from him really, for us as filmmakers, they were just reminiscent of kind of a clockwork orange-type uh, brainwashing effort. And so we look at what he's gone through, and at the same time, start with his suspicions about the event and begin our own investigation investigation sorry uh, into this event and and what really took place and that's sort of where we begin going down the rabbit hole and uncovering lots of really uh, shocking and surprising twists and turns along the way right the exactly in the film in some ways owes its existence to some grainy footage that was shot of this uh, self-immolation, am I saying self-immolation suicide by a number of people in Tiananmen Square, 
Uh, had it not been for that footage, I, it would have been a difficult thing. For, well, the whole I think much of the film hinges on being able to look at that film and being able to begin the process of understanding what the truth is. Uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of how how the footage came about, uh, the involvement. Of, there's a, a CNN reporter who was in Tiananmen the time that this happened. So that's, that's I think, a, a key part of the story. Right. So, I mean, I think you're right. The film wouldn't exist without the footage. And at the same time, I think the event and the impact of it wouldn't have existed without the footage. So the, the first footage emerges in Chinese central television broadcasts. And these are primetime news items with very disturbing imagery that are aired uh, actually exactly 19 years ago today from a Chinese calendar perspective. It was first, the event happened on Chinese New Year's Eve, which was that year, January 23rd, 2001. And so as families are getting together and celebrating the New Year and everyone's coming together, they learned that these... um, supposed Falun Gong practitioners, uh, mothers and daughters, and uh, just a variety of people, seven of them in total, had allegedly set themselves on fire in some effort uh, to reach some afterlife paradise. That's what's alleged. And and so it's very disturbing because of the timing, because of all the families getting together. Um, consider it kind of the equivalent of like a, an American Thanksgiving. And, you know, you hear these families just destroying their, their lives and the lives of their children. And it's very troubling. And from there, it's repeated ad nauseum in the Chinese press. It becomes something that appears in school curriculums, and it's aired in public spaces repeatedly. And we're talking about close-up footage of burned children and uh, and burned individuals. So very troubling, very disturbing, and from that perspective, very powerful. But when we get into the story, um, one of our writers on the film, uh, Cameron Ford, was able to connect with Lisa Weaver, who uh, was the CNN journalist uh, apparently the only journalist, uh, to our knowledge, that was on the square uh, with her cameraman uh, the day that that event happened. And so we get a hold of the footage that CNN had, and we, you know, we discover that she's actually quite far from the incident. And in the meantime, the Chinese state is stating that she's the source of this close-up imagery, uh, that the footage comes from CNN. So there's an obvious discrepancy about where the footage comes from in the first place. And from that, a number of other questions uh, emerge. So who shot this footage, and how did they get access to it, and how was it shot the way that it was shot? So I think as filmmakers, and um, you know, what we found as well is that other filmmakers appreciate that aspect of where did the production come from, and how were they able to do this. Without getting into too many of the details, right. I think there's, there's that angle to it. And you also mentioned in terms of the, the graininess of the imagery, sort of aesthetically, when, from a filmmaking perspective, what we've, what we've tried to do here is sort of maintain that aesthetic of we're looking at late 90s videotape, and that's something to try and bring people into that experience right from the beginning, because it is a bit unique. Nowadays, with social media and with the, the high-resolution image we have, it's a different scenario, but it's kind of, you know, it's only 20 years ago, but we're throwing ourselves back into sort of a different time period and a different aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, it, it's... Uh... It's amazing how quickly, uh, in just a few years, how the perception of uh, our reality that we live in, the world we live in, how it's being manipulated, and also the technology, just as you described it, we're, we're light years uh, from the time when this happened. Uh, just to make one, I think, important connection, and that is state, uh, state, Chinese state TV is essentially government TV. There's virtually no separation, and uh, Chen 
Rujang. Am I saying his name correctly? I just want to make sure I'm I'm not butchering it too bad. Uh, Chen Ray Chung. Ray Chen Chung. Ray Chung is his name. Yeah. Chen, Chen Ray Chung. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, works has worked for uh, Chinese state TV. So I, I just want to make sure that people understand, or and correct me if I'm wrong, that Chinese state TV is Chinese government speaking to to the people. Yeah. No. Exactly. It's it's state run and. And that's one of the fascinating things in meeting Chen. Um, he brings out with him manuals from his workplace. And so we review these. And that was part of it. It's, you know, hearing what he had to say, it's a, it's a fascinating starting point, his claim that this was all staged. But, you know, where's the basis for that? And then how do you, how, how are you confident that that's the case? Um, and, and so one aspect of that is looking inside how they create the news. And so some of his manuals that he brings out, are there's literally a propaganda affairs manual about how the Communist Party committee within the organization uh, dictates and plans ahead propaganda messaging that they then work to craft. There's that kind of thread that would show um, the potential for something to be crafted because that's actually how they operate. Mm-hmm. So that for us was a sort of fascinating starting point. And he worked at one of the four largest uh, state-run Chinese news networks, and a lot of the other networks will follow sort of the main thrust of what's happening at these major um, the major networks in China that are run by the state. But even though a lot of there are, of course, media outlets that are not officially state-controlled, inside China um, there is sort of a directive from the top that this is the state's position on a certain group or a certain issue. And you see that nowadays with Hong Kong. There's, uh, there's been some great reporting about how China is actually completely owning the propaganda war with regards to Hong Kong in, in the context of mainland China, because there are no alternative viewpoints allowed. It is very clearly that these people are, you know, again, being portrayed as dangerous, being portrayed as um, anti-China forces and these types of things. And that's the narrative that you get in the Chinese state. So we kind of set out to make this film thinking it would be relevant more broadly than just the people involved in it because of sort of the interest in fake news and can we trust what we see and how far could we go with fake news when someone has so much power over the media and the messaging. But it has other kind of current connections to it as well now because of what we see happening with Hong Kong, but also because of what we see in Northwest China with the Uyghur Muslims who, you know, there's so many of them that are in these internment camps and now documents are being released showing how they're being forced, uh, you know, compelled or coerced into abandoning their beliefs through another kind of regimen of, of, of brainwashing and this type of similar, it's the same type of tactics that have been used over and over, and we just see it specifically in this instance with Gong Gong. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Jason Loftus. He is the director of the new film, Ask No Questions. It's premiering in, in I believe it's a North American premiere, correct me if I'm wrong on that, uh, at the uh, Slamdance Film Festival, Saturday, uh, January 25th at 10.30 at the Gallery Screening Room, and its second screening will be on Wednesday, January 29th at 6 p.m. at the Ballroom Screening Room, and I have been to Slamdance, I can tell you, everything's right there, it's self-contained, it's a great environment, it's a great venue for, uh, for seeing films, and you have an opportunity, more often than not, for the filmmaker who just whose film you just watched to be walking down the hall uh, to over to the uh, filmmaker's lounge, so it's a great experience. And if people want to know more about the film, they can go to asknoquestionsfilm.com. They can find out more about the film, screenings, and all of that other stuff. In the last couple of minutes I have with you, I want to talk a little bit about the focus of the film in many ways is the 
the destruction of Fulong Gong the, uh, in China. And briefly, what is Fulong Gong for people who don't know? So Fulong Gong emerged in China in the early 90s and, and sort of emerged in the midst of a boom in what were called Qigong practices, so kind of like a Chinese yoga or Tai Chi type uh, explosion. And this happened um, sort of coming off of the, the Cultural Revolution where there was a little bit more um, freedom to connect with traditional Chinese cultural things. But at the same time, um, most of these were purely exercise regimens. And I think what distinguished Falun Gong was that it contained as well a spiritual component. Uh, it's got uh, these five different slow-moving exercises in meditation, and then also a philosophical component that is based on principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. So it spread very widely and quickly in China between 1992 and 1999. Some estimates had it between 70 and 100 million people. Very hard to determine exactly, but nonetheless a very large uh, following. And I came across Falun Gong in 90, 1998 myself. So I was actually introduced to and exposed to the practice prior to its crackdown. And that's why when I, when I first learned of this crackdown happening in China in 1999, it was the messaging that was coming out that this was dangerous and, and uh, you know, it needed to be stopped. It was something that was um, a bit confusing for me at first because it didn't line up with what I was experiencing firsthand, uh, seeing the people in the Falun Gong community, seeing what people were doing, being exposed to what was in Falun Gong. I didn't see the, the, the alarm bells that the, the Chinese government was raising at that time. So... Um, that's kind of it, but then in, uh, from that standpoint, once the crackdown happened, people who continued to practice, so a ban happened in 1999. By that point, Falun Gong's numbers, by some estimates, had exceeded Communist Party membership, so there was a bit of unease, and Falun Gong also has this spiritual component, something that the, the Communist Party was wary of, for sure. Um, and so from that point, they banned it, and anyone who continued to practice was subject to detention, uh, in many cases torture, and from that point on, things escalate. And so that's, that kind of brings us, flash forward quite a number of years, and it's become a struggle between the Chinese government and those who continue to practice Falun Gong. Um, but really, from the outset, I don't think any particular ambitions uh, from a political standpoint in the practice. It's more coming from the standpoint of wishing to have the freedom to practice that in a Chinese context. Yeah. And let me just say, as uh, having seen the film, that uh, the this is a true journalist approach. Uh, it's uh, measured. It's I think fair to all parties. It and and there's also the the human component uh, with uh, Chen Hu Chang uh, and how how all of those things play out in his life. And uh, so there's this personal approach, this personal feel to the film, but also it. Uh, is spotlighting a lot of things that uh, we're going to be dealing with for for a long, long time, uh, not only in China, but I think this is in some ways a preview of coming attractions around the world. It's already in many places. This is the case. You cross the government and uh, these kinds of draconian um, uh, punishments await you, and uh, it, it's we can't have enough films like this to kind of shine a light on these kinds of practices and he'd done a very good job and a very effective job with this film and uh, uh it it what, congratulations on the work thank you very much mike i appreciate it yeah uh, yeah again the film is called 
ask no questions. Uh, and just before we, we say goodbye, I, anything you want people to know about if they're in Park City right now or just moving forward with the film? is do we, Are we looking at any wider releases, theatrical runs and that kind of thing, or, or, are we gonna, or is that a wait and see? So um, I guess I could say more to come on that. This is our very first... Um this is our very first screening worldwide. It's the world premiere of the film. And we're literally bringing with us this morning the final <laughs> cut on a new drive. So it is hot off the press, as hot as you can get. And from there, uh, I think we would like to do a number of other festivals. Nothing to announce at this point yet, but we want to engage with audiences and, and have a conversation around it and, uh, and get it out there. I think you're right. It isn't just purely... I mean, obviously, there's so much attention around what we're doing with China nowadays, in terms of, and that's something that, you know, that we're dealing too much in the film, my own repercussions as I made this film with other business I was doing in China, and that's something that we're going to face when we tackle questions like this. Um, you know, what are the real ramifications? And they are real. And so I think there's a good conversation to be had around that, and I think you're right that the implications around, you know, propaganda and the control of the media, especially when there's absolute control around messaging, and the people who have that control also have political uh, motivations as well. That's something that's relevant beyond purely what we're seeing in China. And I think this, for me, was really eye-opening, not just about the self-immolation incident, but as you look into it, you know, what else do we assume we know for true, only because, uh, to be true, only because it's been said so many times or it hasn't been really challenged and it's just sort of become common knowledge. And... Uh, that's a little unsettling, but I think it's an important thing to ask, and it's an important thing to be open-minded to other points of view and even to opposing points of view because, uh, you know, we don't really know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the, and the ability of uh, state actors now to shut down the, all incoming and outgoing um, tech-related messaging uh, is another tool being used uh, around the world to essentially shut out the, the world and uh, these things have ramifications, the, the implications not only for the populace, for the people in those countries who are not getting information, but also just the idea of this is somehow sort of a creeping, creeping level of acceptability for state actors to behave this way. And this is something that we definitely need to address very quickly, especially, uh, and I think in some ways we're heading towards regulation of the tech industry, the tech sector of the economy in ways that... Uh, we need to have a frank conversation about what happens and how it happens and information, the flow of information, all these things. And they're in this film. And once again, my congratulations on bringing this in, into our uh, into our view in a way that's compelling and very important. So thank you very much, Jason. Love this. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. The film, again, is called Ask No Questions. We've been speaking with the director, Jason Loftus. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.